of creation. Father, you are the the God of creation, displaying your glory in everything that you do. And every word of this and every action that you took in this, this amazing chapter is teaching us a truth about yourself. So please give us eyes to see and ears to hear and, and hearts to, to affirm and love the truth of who you are. You would be glorified in our, our midst. Amen. We're going to read and work our way through uh, all of chapter 1, really, into chapter 2 today. So rather than read it and then read it again, we're going to read and stop. And like I said, there are, there are 15 points to this, 15 actions that I see God taking so that we learn about him. Okay, so uh, simple statements if you want to write down to see this. There probably are others. These are just what stuck out to me. First, we see the simplest. God creates. Before the beginning, God already existed back into eternity past. We discussed that a couple weeks ago. And then in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is an important point to start with because we really cannot have a true definition of who God is that does not begin with him as our creator. That's the primary definition of how we as humans created. That's how we interact with him. That's our first interaction with him. He is certainly more than just creator, but we cannot accept any worldview or idea that presents him as less than creator. And when God began his work of creation, he did not start working with pre-existing materials. He brought all materials into existence. That's what we mean when we're talking about him as creator. I mentioned this briefly last week at the end, Hebrews 11, verse 3, by faith. And this is the author of Hebrews looking back at this passage. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. I think verse 1 that we've read serves as both a heading for this chapter. We're about to read the story of the creation of earth. That's in one sense what it's doing, serving as a heading. Uh, But it's also a statement of God's initial act. This first thing that he did into time, the first thing that happened outside of God's own eternal existence was the creation of the universe, the heavens and the earth. Well, what was the earth like at this point? That kind of leads us to our second the second verse, and then also aspects of the second point. Well, what was the earth like? The earth, verse 2, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Without form and void appears in a number of other English translations as the words formless and empty. I've also heard that these phrases expressed as unformed and unfilled. Uh, One author called it a formless and empty mass that he likes to describe as the blob. That was at least a creative way of, uh, of speaking of it. It's as if God, the divine craftsman, has first prepared the materials that he's that he needed and is about to get to work making something out of them. Like a potter that first prepares the clay. That he'll shape, or the the metal that is ready for a blacksmith to begin work on, or lumber that's ready for a carpenter. Except God made his own materials. God first made the materials, and then the earth stood ready for its creator to make something out of it. 
It is from this blob that God will carefully sculpt the world in all its beauty. So when we first look at the creation that God made, we see it as formless, without form and void, or unformed and unfilled, but, but ready. That's what I see in this aspect of it. And so, and the Spirit of God, it says in verse 2, was hovering over the face of the water. First, God creates. Next, God hovers. Well, what does the idea of hovering make you think of, I wonder? I think of flying, or I think of floating. For the original audience, it would very likely have brought a majestic eagle to mind. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 11 and 12, that Moses there describes God's care of Israel in the wilderness like this, like an eagle that stirs up its nest that flutters, it's the same word, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. You think of that mother eagle and its care of its young and its support of that. Hovering speaks of God's protective care over the course of this unformed and unfilled blob, maybe. Maybe that's too much. God's protective care. Remember, the original audience was the Israelites, the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. And ever since the Red Sea, they had with them a constant reminder of God's presence. Remember what those reminders were? It wasn't just the temple. It wasn't just the ark. It was the cloud. The cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. And what were those things doing? They were hovering over God's people, hovering over the tabernacle at the center of the Israelite camp. And when it moved, they moved. God is a God who hovers, his presence is over his people for protection and for guidance. The spirit of God, another author said, was presiding over the earth or sovereignly superintending it and preparing it for the creative word to follow. The materials are ready and God is ready to do something with this creation that he had brought into existence. We catch a little bit on this, and the Spirit of God. Is it, trans, is it uh, capitalized in your translation? There wasn't the same type of capitalization in the original Hebrew or in Greek. They didn't write that way that we do. It's capitalized in the ESV because they're trying to make sure we're understanding something. And some would say, ah, this is wind, this is breath, this is spirit. Really, the same word is used for all three of those. But it raises an interesting question. Is this so early in Scripture the first reference to the Trinity? And probably the best answers are no and yes. (laughs) The Holy Spirit of God, one of the three distinct persons of our triune God, is not clearly revealed to us until the New Testament. doesn't mean that that doctrine was created. It was just an aspect of the truth of who God was that was not yet clearly revealed. Paul talks about his mystery The plan that was always in effect but wasn't revealed, was hidden, in fact, from his people, waiting to be revealed. However, the greater, so in the Old Testament, we don't see tri-unity with the clarity that we see it in the New Testament. That doesn't mean it wasn't there. God didn't become three at some other point in time. But the greater, more complete light of the New Testament shining backward into the Old Testament does give us a fuller picture of who God was 
who God is and what God was doing. So that's why it's just like, well, no, I don't think Moses is writing, hey, there are three persons in this one God. But yet, as we look back with the light of the New Testament, knowing who God is, we can be like, yes, that is an aspect of of what is happening here. We read in Genesis 1 that God created the heavens and the earth. And it would be easy for us to think that that is a reference exclusively to God the Father. That God who is one. And so it's easy for us to then be like, well, let's just exclude the Son. Let's exclude the Spirit from this because this is just talking about God the Father. However, even though at first glance we would think, oh, it's God the Father who's God that is represented here in Genesis 1. We then read in the New Testament, the Word of God created. That's John 1 which is in reference to the Son of God who created, according to Hebrews 1. Or the image of God, the firstborn who created in Colossians 1. And that's not that there are now five persons to God, right? Because that word, that Son, that image bearer, the image of the invisible God, all in reference to our Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. We learn also in the New Testament that the oneness of God means both that there is only one God, not two gods, not three gods, not a thousand gods, one God, and that an eternally perfect unity exists among the three persons of the Godhead. God is one in three. So who created? Well, God did. We could also say, so who created? Well, God the Father created through God the Son. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't the Father and the Son and the Spirit are just sitting by. They never are. It's a unity of one God. Same thing with redemption. It's like, what was redemption? Well, God the Father redeemed his people through his Son by the power of the Spirit. That's why it's Trinity expanded as tri Unity. That's why we can say God created, and we can also say the Father created, and the Son created, and the Spirit created. In the Old Testament, we may start reading these passages trying to think like ancient Israelites. Remember I said, I think it was last week, that's the first step of interpretation. Who was that author? Who was that audience? How did they think? What was, what was in their minds when we read this? And it's hard work to do that because we're crossing language barriers. We're crossing time barriers. We're trying to put ourselves in a completely different world, as it were, to try to understand this. That's where we start. But I also said that's not where we stop. We may start trying to read an Old Testament passage as if we were an ancient Israelite, but we are not finished understanding any passage of Scripture until we think like Christians, We can't pretend in reading the Old Testament that we don't have the New Testament because we do. And it's dishonoring to the God who gave us both to not review them and read them and understand them in light of each other. So until we think like Christians, which means until we think like Jesus taught his apostles who taught us in the New Testament how we are to understand the Old Testament. So along with this vein of thinking, as we say that God creates, we see it's the Son who creates the Father through the Son by the Spirit. But also, as we think about God who hovers, I'm reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew 23. 
Hear this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? You were not willing. God is still a God who through Christ hovers over his people. And if you are outside of the refuge of his wings, Jesus is offering to bring you into his protective and guiding hand. Because God is still a God who hovers in this way. The created world was unformed and it was unfilled, according to verse 2. So now God continues his creative work, continues, by forming what is unformed and by filling what is unfilled. God forms and fills the earth, which kind of gives us an outline uh, to get us through days one through six. In days one through three, we see God forming the unformed earth. And then in days four through six, we see God filling the unfilled earth. He takes that, that mass and he gets to work to shape it into what he wants it to be. So one God is forming the unformed earth, which is not point three. It's uh, major point one under which we find points three through maybe like eight or nine. This is a confusing outline. But let's, let's make some good progress here. Uh, verse three, and God said, all right, stop. And say we'd make a lot of progress. God speaks. God creates. God hovers. God speaks. Now, again, you might be like, well, of course God speaks. He speaks throughout the whole Bible. But this is the first thing that we hear him saying. Up until verse 3, we didn't know that he was a God who speaks. But we know it because he's introduced himself as a God who says something. God is not an impersonal force. He is not a superstitious philosophical idea. God is personal and he is not silent. He communicates If you thought about the fact that the the fact that you can communicate to each other or that God can communicate with us is because language itself is from God. We did not come up with it. It was a gift given to us from a God who speaks, given to us so that he could speak to us, so that we could hear him and we could understand what he is saying. God speaks in these communication, uh, uh, communicative ways, language coming from God, and that's why it is an adequate way for God to reveal himself. Language isn't a, just a human thing that, that, that somehow creates a barrier between God and us. Right? If it was just we all decided that we were going to communicate this way to each other, and God is separate from that, entirely distinct and disconnected, then written and spoken words would be entirely inadequate. There would be no way to use human communication to speak of the infinite divine God. But if language is from God, then he can use it to tell us about himself. It's a big difference. We need to come to grips with. God is a God who speaks. We need to be people who hear. We have examples of powerful words today. A president or a prime minister can speak words that cause wars or that bring peace. A judge sitting on the bench can can speak something into a legal existence. A pastor at a wedding speaks a marriage union into existence as well. Are you thankful for that? 
handful of people here, extra thankful about that. I now pronounce you husband and wife. And then they leave married where they walked in unmarried. It's in the course of that ceremony. Powerful words, but none of these examples are as grand or as amazing as God speaking. A judge with a legal existence, presidents with words that have consequences, a pastor with theological reality. I don't know exactly how to categorize that. God's words, though, are so powerful. God's words are so creative that they bring concepts or ideas into physical existence that cannot happen apart from God. Like that which is in his mind, he creates a reality and brings things into reality. That's the power of God's creative words. So as a result of God speaking, light moved from a concept in God's mind to a physical reality. I'm not sure if I can communicate that adequately because we, we only know light, we only know creation, but it wasn't until God said it was. And once God said it, there was light. Matthew 8 tells us a story of a Roman centurion with a sick and dying servant. The centurion comes to Jesus and he asks him not to come to his house, but just to say the word and my servant will be healed. Who could possibly have the authority and the power to give a command to sickness from a distance and it would obey him? Now, I mean, five feet, five inches, five feet, five miles. I could say whatever I want to your sickness and nothing's going to happen. So in one sense, like distance doesn't seem to uh, make a difference, but yet I think we get a sense of which like, well, it would be easier to heal close than it would be from far away. But it's impossible to heal close and impossible to heal far away, except when God intervenes. But who could give that kind of a command to sickness from a distance and it would obey him? Well, the same one who would speak to demons and they would flee. Then the same one who would speak to a storm and it would calm. And the same one who would speak and the dead would be raised. So the centurion, to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And Matthew tells us that the servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus' words carried across whatever that distance was, condemning that sickness and driving it away. Jesus' words are the powerful words of God that create a new reality and command. God said, let there be light and there was light. I see this, that God is a God who accomplishes. Phrases like, and there was, or, and it was so, or, or variations of that. They, it appears nine times in the six days of the creation week. And each time, I think it serves as a simple reminder that what God planned and what God spoke happened exactly as he said it would. God is not a God who just hopes things will happen. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. He's not like us in having intentions that may fall short. God is a God who accomplishes. He does it. He gets the work done. 
Job 42, verse 2, Job confesses this. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Never forget all that God purposes to do, he will absolutely and perfectly accomplish. No word of his, no purpose of his, no plan of his will ever fail to come to utter completion. And our Lord Jesus Christ said that he, the good shepherd, would lay down his life for his sheep, and he did. He said he would rise again from the dead, and he did. And he said he would come back for us, and he will. No purpose or plan of God will be thwarted. He accomplishes all of his purposes, and is faithful to keep all of his promises. And we learned that all the way back in the beginning when God spoke and it happened. Another passage we cannot skip over in reference to this verse, 2 Corinthians 4. It's a little bit, of a, little bit more of an aside, but it's just too good to pass over. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul is speaking of our sin as Satan keeping us in spiritual blindness, covering our eyes so that we would not see. Spiritual blindness, which is like a type of darkness. That darkness reminds us, reminds Paul of this verse from Genesis 1. And if our sin is, is us living in darkness, Paul writes, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, right? So Paul takes this and like, yeah, just like God took darkness and he spoke light into it, your darkness, God will speak his light into and that light shines from the face of Jesus. If you are walking in darkness, you need no longer do that because Jesus is the light of the world. And those who are in darkness don't comprehend him and try to overcome him, but they can't. Darkness cannot conquer the light. The light shines, and you can walk in light of righteousness and holiness and fellowship with God instead of walking in the darkness and blindness of your sin. God saw that the light was good. I see this as God being one who evaluates God evaluates. doesn't just create like, uh, yeah, okay. Like maybe this works, maybe it doesn't. No, God, God is a God who is a judge. God makes moral evaluations. Again, we're meeting him for the first time, that there is good. There is that which aligns with his purposes. And so therefore, there is the existence of that which would not align with his purposes. God evaluates between the two of those things. And he looks at what he's made and he's like, yes, this is what I intended. This is what I accomplished. This aligns with my purposes. God evaluates in that way and then speaks goodness over his creation. Yes, this is good. He's pleased. He's pleased because it meets his standard. And we see according across the lines of scripture, we'll see Uh, Not everything remaining good as we proceed into chapter 3 of Genesis. uh, What, next year? God is still a God who evaluates. God is still a judge. And God has given all judgment to the Son 
which means the God who created everything is God who knows everything, who is the God who knows everything about you. The God who by his word dissects you to the core of your being, Hebrews, right? The word of God, it's it's alive and it's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword and it pierces to the dividing of your soul and spirit, even to the joints and marrow and it discerns your thoughts and the intentions of your heart before the God who evaluates. We all stand naked and ashamed before him And he offers his righteousness as a covering to us through Jesus. Right? The Christ who is the judge is also the Christ who has offered himself to cover us in our guilt. How will you stand before the evaluation of the God who says good and will say evil and will judge all evil? How do you stand? God separated the light from the darkness. I see this as God ordering. We see very clearly God forming the unformed creation in this. God separating, right? His hands are getting into it, as it were, separating the light from the darkness. He's moving things around, as it were. He's shaping it into what he intended it to be. And we'll see God doing the same things on days two and three. But this first time, God, not just from a distance, but God actively separating. And he separates the waters to create uh, an expanse. And maybe this is the sky. Uh, It's really kind of difficult to understand exactly what God is talking about here because I mean, for the Egyptians, you remember how they said, it's like there's just water everywhere and then like a bubble gets formed and then the earth exists inside of this bubble and everything below the bubble is water and everything above the bubble is water. And we're like, well, that's not really true. Uh, but for an ancient people, it's just kind of like, well we've, well, we've dug to the center and we know about the cores and we know up in the sky and what that looks like. But it's kind of like, well, I look up there and it kind of looks like water to me. I mean, I know it's technically not, but it's blue like water and well, the rest of the water around here is brown right now because of the mud, but is this an aspect of that accommodation or just kind of like, yeah, you, you, you think that there's a God below and a God above and then there's a God in this, like the Egyptians said? No, it, it is God himself who separates those. Those aren't gods. But it is God who separated the water and created a livable space for us. He pushes the waters then out of the way to make room for the dry land to appear. That's <laughs> just like every time I've done that in any body of water and push it out of the way, what always happens? It always comes back, right? You try to create that moat uh, around your, your sand castle at the beach and then the wave comes in and just crushes right over it. It's like, why won't it just stay in its place? But when God orders things, it stays in its place. God creates these boundaries. He orders things. And as scientists have come to understand how God made things to be. We learn that light doesn't just appear. It travels through space at a measurable speed. Not a comprehensible speed, but a measurable speed. And even this is from the creative hand of God. He's the one who's working in these things. He orders. Verse uh, verse 5, God called the light day and the darkness he called Night. God names. God names. Parents today named their children for all sorts of of different reasons. I think a primary one is trying to confuse teachers and Starbucks workers 
uh, with odd spellings, but maybe not. Maybe it's a family name. Uh, Maybe they share the first letter uh, with their parents or siblings. K's, right? We have all sorts of different reasons for that. Maybe they name them after a character or after a celebrity. Or or more often in our culture, it's just like they just like the name. Uh, if, If the person named the, if the parents named the child after a family member or a character in a story, typically that would be because it's, it's given in hope. The name is given hoping that certain traits will be shared with their namesake. You, if you named your son Bilbo, you would hope that, that he would also be noble, even though small, and, and, and go on adventures and be loyal. I don't know, if, have, have you, any of you met anybody named Bilbo? I have, why? What's, uh, Keith, you love it, man. Why, aren't there, why isn't there a Bilbo on your row? Amen, right? Let's just, uh, that's an altar call. Come forward. No, just, no, don't. There's still t- <laughs> Brothers and sisters, may we have a Bilbo. No, just don't. Don't do it. But there's a hope for that, right? I, oh, I hope that this, but you can't actually bring it about. Like, you don't, there's no guarantee of those type of things. But whatever the reason for giving a name and whatever hope there may be, uh, the babies don't name themselves. The right to name something comes from one who is greater, bestowed. We can imagine a name or a title being bestowed or granted as an honor. We see that as God works through other things. We see God renaming people in fulfillment of his promises to them. You were Abram, now you're Abraham. You were Sarai, now you're Sarah. You were Jacob, now you're Israel. The greater always names the lesser. Naming is a display of authority. And here we see God naming the time where light shines on the earth. He calls it day. He also names the time where light doesn't shine on the earth. He calls it night. Later, he will name the expanse above heaven And he will name the dry land, earth, both of which are terms that we're familiar with already from verse 1. He created the heavens and the earth, but we call it heavens and we call it earth because the God who made it named it. Interestingly, God does not name most of the things that he creates. He creates plants on day four, but he doesn't name them. He creates a greater light, the big one. For the day, he creates a lesser light, the little one. For the night, he doesn't name them. We shouldn't quickly pass over this because it does provide, I mentioned last week that while there may be some similarities between like the Egyptian or the Babylonian myths about how the earth created, there are far more contrasts. It's a very distinct story, and this is one of them. God, in not naming the sun and the moon, in not naming all of these things, is distinguishing his creation story from all of these other myths. The sun and moon were named and thought of as divine beings and worshipped often by peoples, idolatrous people across the globe. They've come to recognize we wouldn't be alive if it weren't for that big fire, that big light. So we should ask it for help. But God doesn't even name it. He's kind of like, oh yeah, that light? Yeah, I made it. It's not personal. It's not divine. And you better not worship it. 
Right? Do you see the distinction that, Moses, that God is having Moses make between that? Right? It's, no, it's not Ra, it's not a tomb, it's not a God at all. It's just a light. God confronts those idolatrous ideas through the writing of Moses. He doesn't even bother to name them. They're merely identified by their size. They aren't personal. They aren't divine. After day three, actually, God doesn't name anything else at all. And as we'll see, this is because he will delegate the authority to name to someone else. I wonder, as we think about further stories, we try to think about the importance of naming and how how other peoples have viewed that. Is there a piece of that authority communicated when the demons try to name Jesus? We know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And since I know who you are, since I've called out your name, you, you, you know, we're, we're equals. Maybe I'm over you. You can't do what I said because I called you out. <laughs> Doesn't work. And I know, I know who you are. <laughs> and I do have authority. Doesn't matter who knows well, whose name. What other authority is there of naming? I'm thankful that Jesus gives us a new name. Thankful if you remember when we talked about baptism that, that God gives us his family name in bringing us into his family. United by him, united with him by faith. That you don't have the same name you used to have. You have a new father, you have a new family, you have a new name. God names. There was evening and there was morning the first day. God pauses. God pauses. This phrase, evening and morning, the X day, uh, it occurs at the end of each day up through day six. And that, that makes sense to us. Uh, of course God didn't create at nighttime. <laughs> I mean, who works at nighttime? Unless you have a third shift, graveyard shift type of thing, which we all, you know, nobody wants to do that. <laughs> like, it was like, oh, you know what I don't want to ever do? Sleep. Like, that's, that's, that would be ideal. And so we just look at this story like, well, God stopped every night when it became night. Nobody works at night. Well, that doesn't make sense. Like, it might make automatic sense to us, but why did God need to stop? Like, does God have to take a break to sleep like we do at nighttime? No, absolutely not. He didn't pause because he needed a break. He wasn't tired. That can't be it. And writers from our era take pains to demonstrate, this is interesting, right? Again, because we're looking at Genesis 1 through a specific lens, right? With theological and interpretation assumptions. And so when we come to this passage, writers are taking pains to demonstrate God could most certainly create everything that exists in six days. He could do that. And someone's like, no, 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 it would have had to have taken longer. And we're like, no, no, six days is more than enough time. That's the point. It's more than enough time. Writers from ancient eras were not concerned about proving that it could happen in six days, Because they were like, but it didn't actually take him six days, right? Like God didn't need the time. You reckoned with that? Like it wasn't six days because he needed to delay. Like six days is actually longer than it should have taken, not not shorter than it should have taken. And so others were like, well, why would he take six days? Why did God not just that one powerful word create everything and it's just up and running from nothing to everything? That's what they struggled to understand because it seemed like such a long period of time for God to work. Well, God did not create over the course of the week because he needed the extra time. It definitely could have gone from non-existent to existing, formed and filled instantaneously, but that isn't what he did. Why? Well, 
because creation was according to his plan. He spread out the work. Here's the profound reason, okay? You know why he spread out the work? Because he wanted to. Not because he had to, because he wanted to. God is never rushed in his work. Are you rushed in your work? Whatever the job is, I always feel myself just rushing to complete it to get to whatever the next thing is that I can rush through to get to the next thing to rush through. Never enough time, always too much work, right? And we just feel this drive to faster and faster and faster and finish, finish, finish. God does not feel that rush. God is perfect patience and perfect power, perfect planning and perfect accomplishing. He doesn't delay in fulfilling his promises because he is limited in his power. And he doesn't delay because he's opposed in his purposes, as if he would work faster if it weren't for all these pesky humans and demons stopping him. That's not what's happening. Apostle Peter reminds us of this in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says this, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved. We sang about it today as he's talking about Psalm 90, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years And a thousand years as one day, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some, like us, would count slowness, that he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is eternally working according to his perfect, patient pace, never rushed never delayed. He is just working. He pauses because he wanted to. And I think an aspect of that is to teach us about what the rhythm of our lives should be, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Verse 6, man, we are flying. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. Let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. I see here that God is a God who designs. Here on day three, Moses introduces this idea of kinds, K-I-N-D-S. And the concept that jumps out to me here is the incredible variety of things that God created. Here, Moses highlights just two kinds of plants. There are regular seed-yielding plants, and then there are fruit trees, and the fruit has the seed. Sometimes you just have the seed. Sometimes you have seed inside of a fruit. But then as I start to consider even my limited knowledge of plants, we see here acorns and pine cones and those little helicopter things and magnolia seed pods and coffee berries, right? Uh, And dandelions with a little fluff that falls out. And and apples and grapes and olives and bananas and pineapples that grow up, not down, 
I like to say that pineapples grow on trees, and it annoys Leanne, but I'm not going to lie from the pulpit, so she's right. Coconuts. Like, why are all these things so different? According to one random website that I just did a quick Google search for, there are over 70,000 different varieties of trees in the world today, and around 400,000 different flowering plant varieties. I mean, think of Venus flytraps. What's with that? Or certain plants that are called pyrophytic, which means that they require forest fires to melt the resin that surrounds the seeds. They cannot populate. They cannot reproduce if there's not a destructive fire. What? That's so cool (laughs) because God designed it. And all of this was, was not just created by God, it was designed by God. And there really is a distinction between that, right? Again, the concept of the variety of all of these different kinds is from the mind of God. It did not just happen. Right? Anything that we work with by way of colors or trees, even in like the, the most creative sci-fi weird type of writing is taking things that we know that already exist and twisting it. Oh, well, we have two arms? Well, this guy has four arms. Or we have six toes, he has 12 toes. No, no, his toes are tentacles. No, 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 they're talons. And he has three mouths or he has no mouth. But it's all defined by the categories that God created. We can't think outside of that box. God created the box. These concepts originally came from his creative mind. And what we say here about the design of plants applies to stars and planets and asteroids, as well as fish and sea creatures. There are dolphins and blowfish and sharks and jellyfish and piranha and lobsters and whales and narwhals. Weird. Like, I thought that that was fictional for a time. It's like, well, there's nothing like that. That's just kind of like the unicorn. It's fake. No, it's a real thing. It's just weird platypuses. He created the variety of birds and all forms of land animals. And even though all of them did not exist in their current forms at creation, right? He didn't create black labs and labradoodles and schnauzers and whatever other dogs. He didn't create all of those types of dogs, but yet all of those things can be spoken of as created by God just as surely as he created you. He's the one who formed you in your mother's womb. Everything that exists is the creation of God. And we see this same multifaceted design on day four with the various lights that exist in the sky on day five with the great sea creatures and other living creatures in the waters and in the birds. And on day six with these three categories of land animals that he'll give, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth. All of this design is from a God who designs God has formed the unformed earth on days one through three, and then he gets about filling the unfilled earth. It's like he created the heavens, and then he creates the water in the sky, and then he creates the land, fills it with plants, and then he's going to get putting something in the heavens or the sky and putting something in the waters and the sky and putting something on the land. Do you see what we mean by the filling of that? Right? Like the the house is built, now he's going to populate it. That's what we mean by the the filling. It's not going to be void. It's not going to be empty. It's going to be filled because that's how he created it to be. Verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day 
the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. God organizes. That's what I see first here on day four. There's an undeniable organization to creation. The rhythms of our world, day to night to day to night, month after month as the moon goes through its turns of waxing and waning, spring to summer to fall to winter to spring, year after year after year, all of this is part of God's creative work. Since the very beginning, all of creation has lived by these rhythms. And for millennia, mankind has observed and tracked these rhythms. Civilizations all over the world have, have various forms of calendars recognizing the path of the sun, right? We need this screen in the winter more than we need it in the summer. Because in the summer, the sun's above us. And in the winter, it heads south, right? We're not the first people to recognize that when your eyes hurt. When the sun is shining in in the middle of December, Recognize the waxing and waning of the moon. Recognizing even and tracking and knowing what would happen of the movement of the stars. This is possible because God is a God not of confusion or of chaos, but a God of order. A God of organization. A God of clarity and a God of peace. As we read Genesis 1, one of those other things that we might just fly over quickly, uh, but... We shouldn't. We, we need to focus in on what this focuses in on. Genesis 1 is extremely earth-centered. Do you notice that? Like there's a whole lot more that was made, but all that it really seems to be talking about is life here. And that's understandable because it is here on earth where God's image bearers will live and where God's redemption plan will play out. I mentioned last week every interpretation of Genesis 1 has unanswered questions. And one of mine is like, what happened with the other planets? Like, when was Mars made? Or Jupiter? Like, we see all these different things as they go and look at like, oh, well, Mars had this and it had this and these type of movements and look at this and like, well, when did that happen? Like, what is the story of the history of Mars? We don't know. Like, maybe it happened in day four, but I don't think so. Probably more like day one. Just unanswered questions. And it's like, well, God doesn't tell us because he's not concerned to tell us the answers to all of our questions. But here is his focus. He made a lot more. But here is his focus because here are where his image bearers will be and where his plan of redemption. Verse 20, God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Next, I see that God is a God who blesses. He's generous. He's generous to his creatures, providing food and shelter. He's generous to his enemies, we find out later, providing uh, rain and sunshine for them and allowing them to enjoy the enjoyments of life. And he's generous to his children, giving wisdom without holding back to those who ask. And we see God's generosity in his blessing of creation. Whenever I read this passage, I just can't get past that word swarm. Right? Swarm is not like one little creature swimming along. 
You think of a swarm of fish. It's not just the one. It's the whole school of them. It's this teeming mass of life moving around. Uh, Leanne and I are always fascinated by the murmurations of birds, right? It's just like, what are they doing? It's not just one. They're all moving as one. It's just amazing. The waters of the earth are not populated with a small, scarce number of living creatures. They swarm with them. I love that. I think that speaks to God's generous blessing. It almost makes me want to start singing in a Jamaican accent about life under the sea. Almost makes me want to. But God delights in the vast multitude of creatures that he has made. You read Job 38 to 41, you will see a God who takes pride in the majesty of his creative work. And rightly so. Especially in chapters 40 and 41 where he highlights Behemoth and Leviathan. And I like, check out these two. There's another point of contradiction here, speaking specifically of something like a Leviathan, a, sea, a great sea creature, a great sea monster. Another big point of contradiction between the creation story and the creation myths of ancient civilization, because frequently you'll read about these sea monsters, creatures of unimaginable size and power roaming the seas and oceans and capsizing ships and eating the crew, right? These are monsters that must either be gods or be that which is uncontrollable by the gods. The opposing force, maybe the gods are the source of goodness and these monsters are the source of evil and we live in the tension between those two different things. Then we get to Genesis 1 and God's like, oh, that? Yeah, I made that. (laughs) It's just like, it's just a thing. It's kind of like, oh, sure, I made the minnow and I made the Loch Ness monster, like whatever it is. Yeah, I made that. Like, no big deal. And then he, he talks about it. It's not a manifestation of a God. It's not another evil force. Job 41, Leviathan's greatness and near invincibility just is another expression of the glory and the majesty of the God who made him. And then in Psalm 104, Leviathan plays in the sea like he's one of God's pets. It's like, oh, look at, the, look at the cute little sea monster. Oh, he ate that whole whale again. I love it when he does that. Kind of like, Oh, wow, like we're talking about something, someone very different than what our expectations would be. All of those, God is not opposed by these creatures. They owe their very being to him. They exist for his pleasure and his glory, just like the rest of creation. See a very sharp distinction between the myths of the nations and the truth of God's word. Verse 22 then, where God blesses still, verse 22, we see this, this explicitly stated that God blessed these sea creatures and the birds He blessed them specifically the blessing of a reproduction because his plan is for the waters and the skies to continually be filled with the creatures that he has made. And in this blessing, we see God commanding. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill. This type of command is an example of God's sovereign controlling authority over all creation. He owns it, he rules it, he orders it with a command. This is what you must and will do. Even in the blessing of those things, God has the right to tell his creatures what to do and he exercises that right. He commands and he must be obeyed. And isn't it remarkable then to flip forward again into scripture to find Jesus saying to his disciples after his resurrection in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he issues that command, right? Go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus is the Lord of creation who commands and he must be obeyed. 
God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth, according to their kinds. And it was so, it was verse 24, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God delegates. Not what I would have expected. God has all of this authority and yet delegates it. Next week, we're going to dig more deeply into what this means. But we see here that God, the God who wields all authority over all of creation, grants specific ruling authority to one, that's two, one distinct part of his creation which is humanity or man, mankind. God still maintains his rule, right? He didn't just hand it over and then leave, right? God delegates to stewards who take his authority and exercise it and then answer for it because it's still God's authority, but we see a very specific hierarchy in creation where there is God and ruling for God is the delegated authority of humanity And then there's all of creation. We see this delegation. We see this hierarchy. But one of the the remarkable things that we learn about God here is that he is imageable, right? In this delegation, he's imageable. He's representable. This does not happen with the creation of other gods. That's what happens in all these other stories. Man, there's too much work for the main God. He's like, I'll create some other gods to do some stuff. And then all those gods, like, they're like, ah, there's so much to do. Maybe we'll create humans to do this stuff for us. No, God doesn't create other gods. He creates human beings, male and female, who are created in God's image. Come on, Colossians 1, right? (laughs) Image of the invisible God. Like, it wasn't that long ago that we preached through it. I guess it was a year ago that we did Colossians 1. Christ Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Let's just think about that image. Don't forget Colossians 1. Just chew on that, getting ready for image next week. Verse 29, God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. Every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God feeds. The gods of the nations are idols created by humans, imagined by people like us, created in their own image. That's the gods of the nations. We get tired, so the gods must get tired. We get annoyed, so the gods must get annoyed. We get hungry, so the gods must be hungry. You see the the opposite of what is supposed to happen here. And oftentimes in these various creation myths, the gods who created humanity did so to meet their own needs. 
They were lazy because we're lazy. So they didn't want to work, so they created humans to do work for them, to make those foods. They wanted servants to provide food for them, so they formed men and women. Not so with the one true and living God. He did not create us to give him food. He created us and gave us food. He is not a God who eats. He's a God who feeds. He's not a God who takes. He's a God who gives. The God who redeemed Israel from Egypt also fed Israel in the wilderness. And Jesus teaches us to ask, give us this day our daily bread. We need you to give us our food. Then Jesus miraculously feeds the multitudes with his creative power creating fish that weren't there and bread that didn't exist before to feed these. And then that physical need points us to our greater spiritual need. Therefore, Jesus is the living bread that came down from heaven. And if we fail to eat of him, we have no life in him. Verse 31, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Final point, 15 in, God rests. And once again, we plan to dedicate a whole Sunday to this text, but I want to end the creation week with these points. God brought his creation work to a conclusion. We see the bookends of this passage. One verse one, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Two verse one, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. He started it and he finished it. God concluded his creation week. And when God evaluates again, his concluding evaluation of his creation is this. Verse 31, behold, it was not just good. It was very good. When we read that, I read it's like it's ready. If we thought that there was potential in verse 2 as the spirit is hovering, now the stage is set. And the only reason for the stage to exist is for the play to take place. Right? God built the world to put the story into it. It's like the actors are there, all of the parts, and it's like, and here we go. The narrative begins. The stage is set. God's rest here focuses on his concluding his work and his reigning over his work. When you think of God resting, don't think got into his bed. Think sat on his throne. Because that's the emphasis here the earth being his footstool. God did not just stop and leave. God's creative work was concluded, but his ruling, reigning work would continue unending. He still works to maintain and preserve his creation. He sustains it by his powerful word, Colossians 1, yet again. Our Lord Jesus Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Behold, in this text and out this window, in the sky and in the sea and in the stars, everywhere, 
Even in the variety, I mean, look around here in the variety that we have, height and skin tones and eye color and hair color and age and all of these different things. Behold the glory of our creator God. Right? That's the marvel that we're supposed to have when we come to Genesis 1. Shaking our heads, be like, whoa. This, even in just the first chapter, this is who God is? I can't wait to find out what happens next. And the story gets even better. Oh, it gets really worse. Then it gets really better for a long time. And we're still waiting for that. But I, I hope this week that you take some time to meditate on this passage and on these truths. These 15 points, get your own 15 points. Get another 30 points. I don't care. And as you do, consider what other passages echo these truths. Because nearly every author of Scripture, maybe every author of Scripture, points back to this as a reality, that God is the God who created us and created everything else. Where else in scripture does God's creative activity describe? Ask yourself that question. Wherever you are in your Bible reading, look for things like this. And when you look them, don't keep them to yourself, right? Share them. Share them with your family and share them with your friends and share them among your small groups. Maybe, maybe you can even share them on Basecamp so that all of us can look at those things and marvel together at that. I looked at the Psalms. I, I looked at Revelation. I looked at the prophets. I looked at the Gospels. I, I looked at the letters. God is the glorious creator of all things. We can enjoy this God and marvel at who he is together. A great place to have stopped to lead us to the table would, been, would have been God feeds, but I wanted to finish the chapter out. Just a circle back to that, though. God is a God who meets our needs generously. And when we come to this table, that is the truth proclaimed. That what we need spiritually, Jesus accomplished. And he accomplished in offering himself to us. So as you come, you, you're hungry. I'm hungry. We're going to have a meal out there physically. Uh, we're going to feast spiritually on Jesus first. If you're a follower of Jesus, then he who has offered himself for you calls you to come and eat of the bread and drink of the cup to proclaim his death for you. So will you come, come to the God who made you, the God who redeemed you, and the God who continues to sustain you physically and spiritually every moment from now into eternity. That's the worship that we come to at this table. If you're not a follower of Jesus, rejecting God as creator, rejecting his blessing, rejecting his generosity, rejecting what he's offered to you in the person of Jesus, um, first question, why? Right? First plea, come to Jesus if you haven't. But then also just don't come to worship him for who you don't think he is. The table, the table is not for those who have not followed Christ. But for those of us who, who have placed our lives and our souls and our eternity into his hands, we come to eat and drink, to be nourished by him, to worship him and to long for the, long to see him. The one that we've read about, the one who has changed us, we look forward to his coming so we can see him face to face. So, so come in gratitude, come in dependence, and come in hope of meeting the one who calls you to himself. Lord Jesus, you are the glorious creator God. The power of the cross that you bore our sin, you took our guilt, you took the wrath that our guilt deserves, you offered yourself for us. Please minister your grace to us as we come to the table as a needy people. Amen.